Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into the Song of Ice and Fire weekly podcast with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I've been recording a series of episodes on Star Wars for patrons. Last week, I wrapped up episode one, The Phantom Menace, with our guest, Ara, aka I Eat Zebra. And this week, we're going to jump into episode two, Attack of the Clones. And I want to start by reading some of the most popular reviews on Letterboxd for this movie. Review number one. One of the most innovative, groundbreaking pieces of cinema ever conceived. Anyone who disagrees is anti-art. Review number two. Don't let Jar Jar Lloyd fever cloud your mind. This is the worst Star Wars in a walk. Review number three. Some of the best images ever made are in here. Some of the best sounds, too. And review number four. This was a mistake. So before The Last Jedi, this was the most divisive Star Wars movie. You either love it or hate it. And while I overall come down on the love it side, I totally get where the hated side is coming from. I think people are just responding to different aspects of the movie. Of the six George Lucas Star Wars movies, Attack of the Clones is the most flawed, but I think it's also the most fascinating. It's a series of risky decisions, some of which pay off and some of which don't. In terms of the ones that don't, nothing in Phantom Menace fares quite as poorly as the romantic scenes between Anakin and Padme in this movie. They just never come close to making us feel Padme's love for Anakin, which is something the movie just insists is a thing without ever showing it bloom. But the people who love this movie are responding to the risks that pay off. The visual expressionism, the political complexity, and for me at least, the story structure. The intricacy George Lucas talked about. Star Wars as a well-made clock. Attack of the Clones covers even more ground than Phantom Menace, both literally and figuratively, connecting the dots between the hearty optimism of Phantom Menace and the apocalyptic hellscape of Revenge of the Sith. It draws from half a dozen different genres and countless specific influences, ranging from Blade Runner to The Searchers to The Sound of Music. It's a landmark in terms of the technology that went into making it, the first major studio release shot on digital video. And, for better or worse, that makes this movie Star Wars as Lucas always imagined it. It's a personal, experimental work on the largest scale imaginable. So how do you sum that up? What is Attack of the Clones all about? Anne Lancashire, the scholar at the University of Toronto, whose work on Star Wars I've talked about before, she wrote that, quote, Attack of the Clones should have received major attention as a rarity in content, a mainstream American blockbuster with an intensely political focus. These political matters are not merely plot devices, but are given thematic meaning. For the general narrative arc of the film is of a political democracy gradually turning into a wartime emergency power state, which will have become the dictatorship of the Empire by the time of the, chronologically later, original Star Wars trilogy. David Begore, writing about the movie in Bright Lights Film Journal, puts it in more personal terms, describing Attack of the Clones as, quote, an intricately constructed allegorical and symbolic tale with a powerful moral message. It is only by mastering the evils that lurk within themselves that its heroes ultimately conquer those that threaten them from without. Lacking knowledge of their own potential for evil, what the characters in this film fail to understand is that their most dangerous impulses are often their most noble ones. Lurking in Attack of the Clones is a far from simple commentary on the dangers of passion untempered by reason, and of reason untempered by passion. 
For my part, I compared Phantom Menace to the Wachowski's adaptation of Speed Racer, a bright candy-colored adventure movie about corruption and control. Attack of the Clones feels to me more in line with David Fincher's Zodiac, or even more so Michael Mann's movie adaptation of Miami Vice. Like those, Attack of the Clones is a digital movie about the digital age. It's a story about humanity being repressed, redirected, recreated, and ultimately remade. It's about everything being split in two, as Palpatine says, on both a personal and political level. And the genius of the movie, what keeps me coming back to it despite the obvious flaws, is how it links the personal and political together. What's happening to the Republic is a metaphor for what's happening to Anakin. Or vice versa, depending on how you look at it. The literal seduction of Padme is interwoven with the figurative seduction of the Republic into dictatorship and war. If Freud and Marx had gotten together to make a movie, this is what it would be like. Equal parts, symbolic dream imagery, and walking tours of the means of production. Or maybe it's a blockbuster adaptation of the works of Jacques Lacan. There's that great line of his that could serve as a tagline for Attack of the Clones. All sorts of things in this world behave like mirrors. When I covered The Phantom Menace, I said it was defined by its opening shot. Naboo split in half between the shadow and the sun. Attack of the Clones isn't defined by the contents of a composition like that. Instead, Lucas communicates what this movie is all about through a camera movement and a cut. Every Star Wars movie up to this point has started the same way. The text crawl scrolls by, and then the camera pans down, descending from the god's eye of the author and the audience into the universe of the story, like the camera is settling into a seat along with us. They all start this way. Except this one. After the text crawl of Attack of the Clones is done, the camera pans up. It's a simple change, but a powerful one. An example of how the intricate structure of Star Wars makes any break in the pattern stand out. Now it doesn't feel like we're descending from the narration into the visceral experience of the movie. Instead, it feels like we're ascending, from subtext into text, chasing after the opening crawl as it escapes from sight. It's an idea carried over from The Phantom Menace. There are structures buried just beneath the surface of your sight. These structures are both political and psychological, occurring within society and within the soul. They're eventually overwhelmed by their internal contradictions, fragmenting before they recombine into a new form. The camera starts down there, and then rises to the surface, the world of signs and signifiers. Sunlight glints off satellites orbiting Coruscant. They're barely visible, but they're there, silently watching, listening in. Instead of a planet waiting below us, like in other Star Wars movies, now it's looming above us, as though we're Atlas bearing the burden of a whole world upon our shoulders. The status quo is something we're crawling up into, along with the Naboo mirror ships emerging into the frame. They flip to begin their landing run, and the camera follows suit. Lucas cuts to the shot we might have been expecting to see, above the planet as the ships descend. It's as if he's turning Star Wars inside out to show us the mechanisms at work, which is also what he does with both Anakin and the Republic throughout the movie. It's a deliberate discontinuity, violating the 180 rule but vertically. It's basically the same shot, but flipped. It's a mirror image. It's a clone. Later in the movie, when Obi-Wan is investigating the mystery of Kamino, Yoda uses a phrase I love, gravity's silhouette. It reminds me of best novel ever, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, and the bit in the movie Knives Out where Daniel Craig's character is talking about that title, Gravity's Rainbow. It describes the path of a projectile determined by natural law. Et voila, my method. I observe the facts without biases of the head or heart. I determine the arc's path, stroll leisurely to its terminus, and the truth falls at my feet. 
He could have been describing Obi-Wan's story in this movie, following breadcrumb trails in search of the center of gravity, the forces shaping his reality. The camera movement and the cut at the start of Attack of the Clones makes gravity's silhouette tangible. It makes you aware of frames around the action, invisible patterns locking you in. It's dizzying. It's disorienting. You don't know where the truth lies or where your loyalty lies. The film pivots on binaries, establishing borders before breaking them down. The Republic versus the Separatists, Anakin's duty versus his love, and of course, film versus digital. The camera movement and the cut boil down the movie's themes of separation and transformation in order to express them as formal gestures. Up is literally down in Attack of the Clones, a mirror slicing through the story structure like a razor blade. Even before a word is said, you've already got the feeling. Something is rising, up from underneath like the camera, about to break through. We're being reminded of the limits of our own perspective, and as in The Phantom Menace, the truth is hidden just beyond those limits. We've gone through the first two shots, and the third shot shows us that deception at work. The opening line of the movie, the first word of the movie, is a lie. Senator, we're making our final approach into Coruscant. But that's not Senator Padme Amidala at all. It's her body double Corday, seen from behind to emphasize the illusion. The Phantom Menace also started with diplomats entering what turns out to be a dangerous situation, but at least they were who they said they were. Attack of the Clones tricks you from the very beginning, showing you a surface that's about to fall apart. And that carries over into the fourth shot as they're descending into Coruscant, all this fog and clouds surrounding all the buildings, and the shot starts with showing us the shadow of one of the ships on the clouds. And that sums up the movie. It's all about mirror images. Everything from the Republic to Anakin's heart is divided against itself. Shadows typically represent the unconscious. Everyone carries a shadow, Carl Jung wrote, and the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. The shadow is that which is unknown, and so we project it onto others, seeing our own inferiorities in them. Your shadow is always with you, haunting you like Mephistopheles haunts Faust. It chases after you, just like there's a hidden assassin chasing Padme in this opening scene. It's a veil of illusion standing between the ego and the real world, drawing its potency from both. The id contains not only the personal shadow, but the shadow of society, the neglected and repressed collective values, as we'll see throughout Attack of the Clones. But the clouds prevent you from seeing the truth. Everything remains a mystery. And that's the key. Mystery. If you go back to the opening crawl of The Phantom Menace, how did it describe the main villains of that movie, the Trade Federation? Well, it described them in terms of greed, and greed was the central theme of that movie. What about the opening crawl of Attack of the Clones? How does it define the villains of this movie, Count Dooku and his separatist movement? It defines them in terms of mystery, because that's the central theme of this movie. When violence exploded into the placid, peaceful world of The Phantom Menace, we knew exactly who was responsible, because we saw Darth Sidious order Newt Gunray to do that. When violence explodes into Attack of the Clones, we don't know who did it. And when we find out, she's working for another guy, and we have to find out who that guy is working for. It's a network hiding in gravity's silhouette. All you're left with is the violence itself. Well, there was no danger at all, says Padme's captain, but he's wearing an eye patch, literally blind to the truth. And so we get the explosion. And the color palette is very important here. As always in Star Wars, a lot is communicated through color. The explosion is red, fiery red, against the blue shades of the towers and the clouds on the ships. Red against blue. The passionate emotions of the Sith bursting through the icy veneer of the Jedi. That's Anakin's story right there. And it's the pattern of this movie. Blue bleeds into red, over and over. 
The upcoming chase scene through the gray-blue skyline of Coruscant descends into the lower levels of oranges, yellows, and reds. Then our characters split up, and Obi-Wan goes from blue watery Kamino to the red rocks of Geonosis, while Anakin and Padme go from the blue lakesides of Naboo to the red deserts of Tatooine. The pilot we saw talking with the captain removes her helmet, and we see it's Padme. She was hiding in plain sight, just like she was in Phantom Menace, and just like Palpatine does throughout the prequels. That's not her lying on the ground, clothes in tatters, covered in blood and ash. It's her body double Corday, who's only here pretending to be Padme because of this scenario, because she might have to die in Padme's place. The dead double is the keystone image of Attack of the Clones. It's like a prophecy feeding into everything to come. It foreshadows the rise of the clone army, disposable people generated to bear the fallout from greed. Same applies to the droid armies of the Trade Federation and their fellow oligarchs. A different tool toward the same end. That end is violence without humanity. Expressed most directly in this movie by Anakin. They're like animals, so I slaughtered them like animals. So much of Attack of the Clones is about how you give yourself permission to kill. When the Jedi track down the assassination behind this opening explosion, what does she say? It's only a job. And then she gets killed by the guy who hired her. And when Obi-Wan tracks him down, what does he say? I'm just trying to make my way in the universe. Anakin describes his government work as aggressive negotiations. And when Obi-Wan cuts off someone's arm, his favorite pastime as it turns out, Anakin's response is to tell everyone, Jedi business, go back to your drinks. It's a cycle of violence breeding callous alienation. None of them can hear how similar they all sound. As Padme says later in the movie, this war arises from a failure to listen, to pay attention. And that becomes all the easier if you remove human passions from the equation altogether. Just breed soldiers in labs, just build them from metal and wire, and let them fight for us. They won't pity each other, and we won't have to pity any of them. We see that play out in the opening scene of the next movie, Revenge of the Sith, which recreates this same dynamic. During the big, beautiful space battle that opens that movie, Anakin sees a clone trooper in trouble and wants to help them out. Obi-Wan orders him to focus on the mission, and he uses the exact same line that Padme's captain uses on her here in Attack of the Clones. They're doing your duty, so you can do yours. Duty calls us away from passion. Literally away from ourselves in this case, Padme is looking in a broken mirror. She's seeing a vision of her own death. And it's far more tangible, more real, than the dreams that are so real to Anakin that he betrays everything in order to keep them from coming true. He dreams of his mother's death, too. And that's also what this moment foreshadows, the death of Shmi later in this movie. Especially given that for Anakin, Padme and Shmi are basically mirror images. This is also, I think, George Lucas throwing down a gauntlet in terms of the transition from film to digital. He's showing us this eerie, uncanny valley copy and saying that's, that's how this movie was made and that's also what it's about. Form meets content. But that woman is more than just a stand-in for Padme or Shmi Skywalker or the rise of digital cinema. She's also herself, Corday, a separate being from all of them. And there's something nightmarish about how her death denies that. Like she is condemned to be Padme, a clone of another person, performing even unto death, the final curtain. Padme is haunted by it, feeling guilty because the blast was meant for her. Even as she tries to make peace, she winds up contributing to the cycle of violence. And that's what's happening across the prequel trilogy as a whole. This opening assassination attempt kicks off the mystery plot of the movie. It seems like a political act, our introduction to the first of many genres in Attack of the Clones, the political thriller. Phantom Menace had a much more old-timey fantasy fairy tale tone, 
And so Padme was a queen. Fits that kind of story. Attack of the Clones is more modern in its focus, more about plots and paranoia. And so Padme becomes a senator, as if to fit the new genre. But the assassination attempt also turns out to be personal. Newt Gunray, Viceroy of the Trade Federation, arranged this as revenge on Padme for kicking his ass in Phantom Menace. So it's not really about the war that's about to break out. It's connected only in that Newt wants Padme's head on a spike as his price for joining the Separatists. It's a burst of passion in the middle of a cold, calculated game of chess. Red against blue. And Obi-Wan follows that red thread through all the tangled gears of a cross-galactic conspiracy involving multiple secret armies. Meanwhile, Anakin picks up on that same thread with Padme. The great irony is that Anakin's obsession with Padme reflects Newt Gunray's. Anakin wants to love her, Newt wants to kill her, but they've both been thinking about her all this time. So this opening explosion represents Anakin's emotional turmoil, the red amidst the blue of his life. And those emotions will be the death of the real Padme. So right from the start of the movie, the personal and political are bound together. That's the thesis statement of Attack of the Clones. There's no separating the two. It's strictly business, Michael says in The Godfather, not personal. But they always cross over, and that's what Attack of the Clones is about. Then we cut to the office of Senator, I'm sorry, Chancellor Palpatine. He's sitting at his desk across from the Jedi Council, the shot bisecting the two. As in the previous movie, Palpatine plays mild-mannered. Oh, I'm in charge, but it just seems like I still have no power. He's helpless to stop the coming calamity identified in the opening text scroll. On the surface, it looks like he's failed to live up to his promises to Padme to bring peace and prosperity to the Republic. But in truth, Palpatine is behind the Separatist movement. He says his negotiations will not fail, and he means it, just not in the way the Jedi understand. His negotiations are aggressive negotiations, and his failure on the surface is his secret success. It's the same move he pulled in Phantom Menace, just on a larger scale. Create a crisis so people will need him to solve it, seemingly weakening himself while gathering strength behind the scenes. It's particularly notable how he puts it, that he will not let the Republic split in two. Everything splits in two in this movie. Yet, he's often the one coordinating it, pulling all the strings. Mace Windu speaks for the Jedi Council, saying they are stretched thin, trying to contain the Separatist crisis. We're keepers of the peace, he says, not soldiers. One of many lines that collapses over the course of the movie. It's already blurry, given how Phantom Menace opened, with the Jedi as diplomats sent to intimidate more than negotiate. Now we've escalated. An escalation defines the story structure of the prequels, building to war as Luke's trilogy built to peace. There are already soldiers being bred to replace the Jedi, ones who won't even think of acting on their own passions and prejudices, to borrow Obi-Wan's phrase. But that structure is shrouded for the Jedi. Palpatine asks if Yoda thinks this will really lead to war, and Yoda says only that he's blinded by the dark side. He'll say the same thing in the movie's final lines of dialogue, the shroud of the dark side has fallen. They're blind to Palpatine's evil, but they're also blind to themselves. That earlier shot of all the towers wreathed in fog and the ship's shadow on the clouds, it defines the Jedi in this movie, looking in a clouded mirror and unable to make sense of themselves. They don't see the clone army being set up in their name, and they don't see the mess they've made of Anakin, oversights which go hand in hand. As in The Phantom Menace, the Jedi Council is just so sure of itself, so convinced that this is the end of history and they've solved the problems of power and passion forever. Even as the Republic crumbles into civil war, and senators face assassination attempts on the Jedi's home turf, here they are, telling Padme that Count Dooku could not possibly be behind this. He is a political idealist, not a murderer. 
as if those are total opposites, self-evidently distinct. There are so many borders in Attack of the Clones, and they all get crossed, like the opening cut from below the world to above it. He's a political idealist, not a murderer. What if your ideals lead you to violence? We already saw that happen in Phantom Menace, and we'll see it play out on an even larger scale at the end of this movie, when a series of overlapping rescue attempts wind up starting the war to end all wars. After all, the title of the movie is not Rise of the Separatists, it's Attack of the Clones, which rests the responsibility with the Republic. Here at the start, some of the most senior officials in the Republic can't imagine that could possibly be the case. Why? Because they are mysteries to themselves. Mace Windu says that because Count Dooku used to be a Jedi, he couldn't assassinate anyone. It's not in his character. Well, but wait, can we go back to the used to part? Used to be a Jedi? Until he fucked off the start of revolution? Was that part of his character? Did you see that coming? And what about you, Mace? Before the movie is over, he'll cut off Jango Fett's head. And in the next movie, he tries to assassinate Palpatine. He's got good reason in both cases. But the point is that if you asked Mace about that violent part of himself, he would deny it exists. And I don't think he would even be aware that he's lying. It's a narrow-minded, self-satisfied view of human nature that does a lot to explain why Anakin wound up the way he did. He can't deal with his painful and violent thoughts because he's been told those thoughts are inherently unworthy of a Jedi. Count Dooku is another secret shadow. His corruption by Palpatine is hidden from sight beneath his persona. His ideals led him to the dark side, raising another Jungian dilemma. How do you access the shadow without identifying with it, letting it possess you? Mace Windu is not only ignoring complexity, he's also ignoring change, thinking that by virtue of once being an idealistic Jedi Knight, Count Dooku couldn't possibly have fallen. By the same token, the Council is unable to perceive the Republic falling into Empire, and so are unable to prevent it. Because the Jedi fail to pierce the shroud of the dark side, all their certainty comes to nothing. They are unaware of their own shadow, unable and unwilling to integrate themselves into a whole. Palpatine knows them better than they know themselves, and so sets the stage, arranging for Padme to be guarded by Obi-Wan, and so by Anakin as well. Anakin and Obi-Wan have been settling a border dispute, as we hear. The infrastructure is already in place to convert peace into war, and it doesn't matter whether we take the red pill or the blue pill, because an attack of the clones, they lead to the same place, stuck in Wonderland, waiting to see how deep the rabbit hole goes. So that's going to wrap us up this week for Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you get the chance, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can follow us on Twitter, at NotaCastASOIAF, or shoot us an email at NotaCastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can follow me, at PoorQuentin, on Twitter. Just a reminder, we're going to be watching the movie The Last Duel over on the Nada Slack on Wednesday, May 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern. So if you are in the Nada Slack, if you're in the Small Council or High Lord and Ladies tier, come on by then. We're going to have a good time watching that movie. And we're doing that in part because I have an episode on that movie coming out soon with Stefan Sasse. That's going to be out starting on Thursday the 26th for patrons. So thanks again for listening. Thank you so much for your support every month. And I'll see you next week for more Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones.